cornerstone. We have that hope. We have that certainty in Jesus. So we're going to conclude our series in 1 Peter this morning. And uh, we were going to be doing it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, other things came, came along. And then for the rest of the month, we should be doing a short series in the life of David. And various people will be opening that up to us over the next four weeks. But we're going to conclude here in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5, just for a few moments this morning. And uh, I'm not necessarily going to read the chapter to you, but we shall be referring to it as we uh, move through. But I want, first of all, I want us to step back. I want you to step back with me about 30 years prior to the time that Peter wrote this letter. And it's the dawn of another summer's day. It's been quite a busy day, busy night. The disciples have been recipients of a fantastic miracle. They've brought ashore the greatest catch of fish that they have ever caught. And they're sitting around having breakfast that's been cooked for them. And all eyes are being drawn to one person. And it's Jesus sitting there in the midst of them. It's one of his resurrection appearances. And he's engaging with his disciples in conversation. And then, just for a moment, he turns and he eyeballs Peter. And I imagine that he looks him straight in the eye. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And three times he says that. Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. Then Jesus would turn to him and say, well, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. And that would go backwards and forwards for three times. And the other disciples were just onlookers to it. Just this personal conversation with Jesus, between Jesus and Peter. It was the moment that Peter was restored and commissioned. Because yes, if we know the story, we know that Peter was the one who denied ever knowing Jesus there at the most crucial moment when he'd been arrested. I do not know him! He's not part of me. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It was there that he was restored and he was commissioned. And now for over 30 years, Peter has faithfully fulfilled the commission to feed and to take care of the flock that God has entrusted to his care. He knows the elation of preaching before vast crowds. He knows the delight in leading an individual to the foot of Calvary and into the journey of faith. He knows the thrill of seeing a lame man walk. Peter's been there. He's done it. He wears the T-shirt. Peter has also been familiar with the pain of the torturer's whip. 
the loneliness of a prison cell, the fear of a judge's verdict. You couldn't tell him anything about the hardships of life. He knew it all because he'd been there. But in it all, he had experienced the power of God to deliver, the faithfulness of God to provide, the ability of God to protect. Peter writes as one who has travelled through life's struggles and now stands on the brink of glory. Fully qualified to pass on the wisdom and experience of those years. Because as he writes at the beginning of this chapter, in verse 1, he is a fellow elder. He is a witness of Christ's suffering, and he's one who will inherit glory. He's been there, and he has that hope. And it's from this perspective that Peter utters his final words of advice. He speaks to the elders and he speaks to all believers. And that's what we're going to look at first for a few moments. He speaks to the elders in verses 1 to 4. He speaks to them as a fellow elders. He calls them to be shepherds of God's flock. In the commission that Jesus gave Peter... He called him to feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. The two major tasks of any shepherd are those, to take care of the sheep and to feed the sheep. The image of the shepherd is used throughout the scripture of those who are charged with the care of God's people. We all love Psalm 23. We know when Jesus picked it up there in John's Gospel, I am the good shepherd. And Peter here is reminding those elders, those leaders of the church, that they too are to be shepherds of God's flock. A shepherd oversees all the needs of the sheep. The need for pasture and grazing that brings nourishment. The need for water and refreshment that keeps life and the need for shelter and protection that brings security. Protection from the parasites within and the, the attacks from without. A shepherd lived with his sheep. He was, there where the, he was there when they gave birth and he was there when they died. And I've seen grown men <coughs> cry over the death of a favourite sheep. In fact, I've done it myself. The position of elders, Peter tells us, should be entered into willingly in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. Not by any compulsion, not by any coercion, but because you are willing to take on that responsibility. He says they should not be, it should not be for personal gain. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. That is at the heart of the shepherd, the elder, is to serve the flock, is to serve the community there, and not for dominance. 
but to mentor the flock in verse 3. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. A good shepherd could always get his flock to follow. Because a good, the, the flock will always know a good shepherd's voice and therefore will follow them. They don't have to drive them. They don't have to coerce them. But they follow their lead. An elder's work involves a tremendous expenditure of physical and emotional energy. But Peter, who states that there is a very special reward promised to the faithful elder in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We know very little about any of the crowns promised in Scripture. There's the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians. There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy. There's the crown of life in James and Revelation. There's the crown of glory here in 1 Peter. We don't know if these are actually literal crowns or whether they are facets of Christian character which we will bear throughout eternity. I like to think that that's what it is. The crown of rejoicing. The crown of praise within the presence of God. The crown of righteousness, which Christ himself has won for us. And we too will be righteous. The crown of life, because we shall have entered into eternal life and the fullness of life. And the crown of glory, because we shall have entered into the very presence of God. He speaks to the elders, but then he speaks to us all. And Peter now does two things. He instructs us in discipleship. He inspires us in life. Peter, in his closing remarks, gives us six clear imperatives for active discipleship. And they are all things that we are to do. We are to do these. They're not things that actually are automatically done for us. We are to do them. All of you... All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Now, by the look of you, I can see that this morning when you got up, you got dressed. I'm very thankful for it. I'm very thankful for it. And I guess some of you opened the cupboard door and you thought, now what will I wear? What will I wear? I wonder whether you've given as much thought this morning as to the attitudes that you will wear through the day. The attitudes that you will demonstrate to one another through the day. Peter is saying here that you are to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. You're to put on that cloak of humility. So you're to put the other person first. You're to respond to their needs. You're not to think of yourself too highly. You're not to place yourself above the other person. 
You're to serve. You're to serve. He's saying also that we are to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. We're also not to take the place of God, if you like. We're not to try and exalt ourselves above God, but we're to humble ourselves and we're to know our place, that God is sovereign and we are his children. Peter was testimony to the pain of being humbled. He, in his arrogance, had said, I don't know him. But then had to go through the pain of being humbled. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. But then he says you're to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What do you, what do, you do with the things that keep you awake at night? He says you're to cast. What it simply means is you're to throw them. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I don't think I've fished in my life, actually. But a very close friend, you know, who, who, who does. He goes regularly for fishing, and he used to speak about casting the line. Casting the line out, throwing the line out. He says, you throw your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Worry is unnecessary. There is no need for us to bear the burdens when he is willing and able to bear them for us. Worry is futile. It's been said that about 95% of what we worry about never happens. Yeah, but I worry about the 5% that does. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the answer. It has never solved a problem yet. Worry is a sin because it denies the wisdom of God. It says he does not know what he's doing in our lives. It denies the love of God because it says he does not care. And it denies the power of God. It says he isn't able to deliver me from whatever is causing me to worry. <coughs> Peter also says we're to be self-controlled and alert. Notice these are all things that we are to do. Be self-controlled and alert. I don't know about you, but I always find that things just creep up on me. And before I know it, I've said that critical word. Criti you know, that I've criticised that person. Before I know it, I've become irritated by what somebody else has said. And I've responded badly. And yet he's saying we need to be alert and we need to be self-controlled. Nobody can control my temper but me. Nobody can control my passions but me. Nobody can control my desires but me. And therefore I need, I need to be self-controlled and alert, prepared to control my emotions or my responses, but also alert to the dangers and the situations that I might enter into where I will be tempted or I will be confronted. And he says we're to resist the devil. 
The devil has many poses. Sometimes he comes like a snake, seeking to lure us into, a, into moral corruption. Sometimes he disguises himself as an angel of light, attempting to deceive us in the spiritual realm. Here, he's a roaring lion who is bent on terrorising us, destroying us. And what's the answer to this? Peter's very clear. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the gospel that I've proclaimed to you. Stand firm in the gospel that is Jesus Christ. Stand firm in all that he has given and all that he has done, in the riches of who he is. Stand firm on that foundation. When everything else around you is crumbling, stand firm. But he also wants to inspire us. And he closes his letter as he began with a vision of grace, of God's grace, of God's glory and the completeness of the gospel and with the encouragement to stand fast in it in verse 12. He reminds us in verse 10 of God's character and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. He reminds us that all God's dealings with us are not based, not based upon what we deserve, but based upon God's love for us and God's grace. He is the God of all grace. But then he also reminds us of God's calling, who calls us to his eternal glory in Christ. That's where we're heading. We've not arrived yet. Gene's closer to it than we are. Gene's entered into it more than we have. Peter encourages us, to look beyond the struggles of this life to a time when we will be with our Lord forever. Just think of it. We've been picked up from the scrap heap and called to his eternal glory. Remember a few years back, uh, trekking in Nepal, in the Annapurna Mountains, and uh, we set off right down at uh, quite a low level, and we were trekking up to 10,000 feet. And uh, it was quite an arduous journey up that there. Very narrow uh, pathways over ravines, over swaying bridges. And it was, you know, quite... Sometimes you got quite nervous, you know, when there was a 1,000-foot drop down to your right, hat, right there. But you carried on. And always with this thought in mind when we get there when we get there there's going to be this momentous view this momentous view because that's what they've promised us when we get to the pinnacle of our and it was we arrived okay the clouds were low but as we arrived the clouds lifted and there before us was this panoramic view and I wouldn't have missed it for the world of the whole Annapurna range of mountains in, in Nepal. It's a bit like life, isn't it? 
We start off in life as a young child and we journey through life and there are many pitfalls. There are many hazards on the way. There are many ups and downs and sometimes the road is steep, sometimes the road is narrow, sometimes it's quite frightening, sometimes we wonder whether we're going to survive. But what drives us on? What drives us on is the view at the end. The glory of God. The glory and the presence of God. And that's what Peter is saying to his people. He says, look up. Look up to what is to come and the glory that will be revealed. Because he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. That's God's purpose. To make us complete, restore you. At the root of that phrase, restore you, means to put in order. So that which is out of order, that which is out of kilter, will be put in order. To make us right. All that has gone wrong will be put right. To strengthen us, he says. There, to make you strong and to give us a firm foundation. Firm and steadfast. God is working out his purposes in each and every one of us. And it is to restore us. It is to restore us and to make us strong with a firm foundation, which is Christ. And he says, stand fast in it. Hold on, and hold on tight. That's Peter's words to us. We're going to draw to a close as we come to worship again. But before we do that, let us pray.